0: The closer I get, the farther away it goes. Welcome
1: to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about the TV that obsesses us. Right now we're watching American Gods. I'm your host, Annalee Newitz. I'm the tech culture editor at Ars Technica. And this week, we have another double-header episode for you. We'll be talking with Claire Light, who is a science fiction and fantasy author. Her book is called Slightly Behind and to the Left. And she's also a writing instructor. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty of how this episode was put together and all of the different literary tropes that we can see in it. And then in the second half of the episode, Ars Technica's features editor, Nathan Matice, interviews Bruce Langley, who plays Technical Boy on the show. So get ready, and we're going to get started. This was actually a pretty self-contained episode, much more than some of the other ones, in that we're just following the arc of one character, one historical character, And Mm -hmm. then following kind of the career of Mad Sweeney, as well as, I guess, a backstory on Laura. That was a little bit unclear to me because we immediately as we're seeing the story of Essie unfolding starting in the late 18th century, she's being played by the same actress who plays
2: Laura. So Mm -hmm. did you think that the implication was that that was her ancestor? That was that was what I suspected. But I I wasn't sure if they intended for that to be meaningful. It might have been that it was only meaningful in the sense that Mad Sweeney knew that she was um, Essie's descendant, and that gave him a little bit of an extra push at the end. But I wasn't sure it was meaningful in that way. Um, I I thought it might be like, oh, well, we're going to give this story because it's meaningful with regard to Mad Sweeney. And by the way, she's also Laura's ancestor, but that doesn't necessarily mean – Anything You know,
1: although at the end, I do think I mean, not to skip all the way to the end, but like the fact that he that Mad Sweeney winds up helping Laura when he doesn't have to at all, like he could have just taken the coin which he wanted and left her there. We don't actually know what's in it for him at that point. I mean, maybe that is part of it is that she's connected with this line of people who who worshipped him in the Americas, even though Laura has no memory of that and certainly wasn't raised with those beliefs at all. But I I did think that it made the overarching story of American Gods kind of pull together just a little bit more to have Mad Sweeney be the guy who is in this historical myth about Irish people coming to the United States, because in the novel, it's it's a whole other character. We sort of see this story unfold in the novel, but it's not Mad Sweeney who is the character who's being worshipped. It's a different Irish fairy. So I liked that that kind of pulled him into the into the story. I mean, he's dead in the novel at this point, anyway. So, okay, so we we start by seeing basically this long backstory on the character of Essie. Um, we start in Ibis and Jekyll's funeral parlor, which every time we return to it, I love the styling in their parlor. I feel like it's kind of contemporaneous with Mr. Nancy's style, like that that mm-hmm. this show has just decided that like African Americans are all Harlem Renaissance style, um, and you know, which is. I mean, you know, it's a nice style. It's just it's interesting as a choice. Like we don't really meet any characters that are kind of outside that historical period, at least
2: when they're African-American. So I kind of feel like I mean, it it may be as smart as putting them all in the Harlem Renaissance, but I I kind of feel like that is more uh, a a stylistic choice in line with the current obsession with old timey artisanal stuff. And and maybe you're right because it is all the African American characters who are old timey and artisanal, but it feels more like Brooklyn circa 2013 than That's true, <laughs> than Harlem yeah. circa 1930. So yeah. I don't know. That, that was how I was reading that. But anyway.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's probably the wire cutter probably has a review of of quill pins um, and, and they're. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're using at the funeral parlor is the most recommended. So he's telling the story and he's been telling these stories throughout the entire show. And so I feel like this is the longest we've ever delved into one of these historical stories. Like
2: It is. And that is part of the reason why I don't like this episode. One of the things that was so rich for me in the show was that we get so many of these stories and that the stories are short and to the point and they give a kind of a depth and resonance to the rest of the episode, to the main story. And this one became the main story of the episode and it did the opposite. It kind of flattened the main story and was in turn also flattened by being too long.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, can can you say more about that? Like, what do you mean by flattened the story? Just kind of made it less interesting, or
2: I, I think the reason that the stories worked for me up until now, being so short, is that the stories are a little bit fairy taleish, and 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 that's and, and obviously that's deliberate. They're origin stories of the American versions of these gods, and so they don't delve into character and they don't delve into world building. It's just it's very much like gestures gesture stories. And then the gesture story kind of underpins the, the episode of the main story and gives it a little, you know, a little bit of a spin. So each sort of originating gesture story at the beginning of the episode gives you a a, a slightly different perspective from which to look at the episode that we're about to approach now. And of course, each episode, you know, comes from a slightly different point of view anyway. So that gives it added resonance. But if you're giving that much attention to the gesture story, it's no, first of all, it's no longer a gesture. It's a real story with a real character living in the real world. And secondly, it's taken a lot of time away from developing the main story, which is why it flattens the main story. The main story gets that much less time and attention and depth, but they they still don't have enough time, attention, or depth to give to the origin story, the leprechaun's origin story. So that's how come both of them get flattened, and it's no longer serving the same purpose that it originally served. We just had a, a brief discussion over what purpose it actually served, it's unclear what purpose it serves in the story because it sort of becomes the main story. Yeah. So it's, it's being the story if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking back on the sort of intro pieces that we've had in previous episodes. We had Mexican Jesus, who that was, I thought, a really incredible opening and who is uh, killed uh, at the border. And we had the Ice Age people intro, which of course was just a tiny fleeting moment. We had Mr. Nancy's intro. I'm trying, trying to think of what the other really memorable ones were.
2: Um, and then, and then the uh, the Efreet. Or was he an Efreet, or was he, uh, so he a some kind of a djinn? Yeah. That was another one. That was my favorite, actually. And, and, and I'm actually glad that they looped that character back in, although I'm not sure I like how they looped him back in. I just want to put in here that I did have one issue with all of the opening episodes, and that is that they really, really kind of almost whitewashed the difficulty and terribleness, the sheer horribleness of some of these ways of entering America, like the Middle Passage, the slave ships. I mean, it didn't look comfortable or happy the way that they represented it, but it was actually five times worse the way that slave ships were actually organized and the way that the hold in the slave ship worked. There were five times as many slaves in there as they actually depicted, and they were chained flat on shelves that were stacked up three and four people high, and they were packed in so tightly that they couldn't turn over. And so to have them sitting up you know, one layer of people sitting up and able to move around like that, that to me just felt like they were smoothing it over. They were kind of glossing over how horrible it was.
1: It's interesting because the slave ship scene, it is really affecting. And I don't know if I'd call it whitewashing, but I agree that it's its certainly not represented as a horrible as it would have been in real life. But it's interesting because when we see in this episode the indenture ship, it's actually it's, worse, it's yeah. worse than what we see on the slave ship. I mean, not like the slave ship looks like a fun picnic. I no, mean, they are no. they are chained up and and they you know they are so desperate that they kill themselves rather than uh, reaching the new world. But you know they're not like dying and barfing and like being you know, raped or whatever. And whereas we see all of that happen on the indentureship. So it was kind of funny where it was like, okay, I'm sure indentureships were bad too. Like, I'm I'm not saying that, that that was unrealistic, but still it was kind of strange that... That, that was worse. But I'm sorry, go ahead. You were saying about the Rio Grande crossing.
2: Yeah, the, and, and the Rio Grande crossing, the um, the coyote was a woman, a, a kind and responsible woman. And co- coyotes are infamous for being truly horrible people. And the, the statistic I read most recently is that 80% of women and girls who cross the border illegally, not at a border point, but but by crossing the river or crossing you know, geographically at, at a certain point are raped on the way and uh, the Coyotes are almost exclusively men, the, the people who are hurting them over are almost exclusively men. And so, you know, the moment I saw that they were being led across by this woman, I thought, you know, it, it felt like whitewashing to me again. It felt like the, you know, the, the perils of this trip were being glossed over in favor of, of making a really, really black and white argument against these American border patrols who who run around and kill people—it's just making a really black and white argument about that. And you know, it's a very complex situation when people cross in that manner. What happens is very very difficult, and the perils are, are tenfold to what they were representing in that episode. So part of me is like, I, I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to tell a story, and they have to reduce the peril to actually tell the story that they want to tell. By the same token, I kind of feel like if they really truly represented how horrible it was, the audience might not even believe it because it is so terrible. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think that that's true. And it's one of the weird things about fiction is that sometimes when you show something that's real, people are just like, that would never happen. Like, they, you know, and it's and the other thing about that episode, which was uh, last week's episode, the the guest I had on the show last week was Lee Hutchinson, who's an editor at ours and is a, a gun collector, I guess, gun shooter. He's a gun guy. So one of the things we talked about was how it was this very simplistic, black and white scenario where what the episode really wanted to do was tell us that guns are evil. And mm-hmm. so the the crossing of the Rio Grande became a lesson about how guns are evil. And, you know, the, the fascist town became a lesson about how guns are evil. And so it was kind of mm-hmm. all of these really complicated questions wound up being kind of reduced to and by the way, we have some thoughts about guns, and the, they actually <laughs> we only have one thought and the one thought is that they're evil. And so, you know, and obviously, you know, guns are a very complicated part of U.S. history and they're, you know, there's perhaps more to the story than just that they're evil.
2: Yeah, that, that is that is my like main complaint about this entire series is that it promises to become really complex and interesting and then flattens everything like every time it threatens to get really interesting and good, they come in with a big hand and just flatten everything. It's just this black and white scenario.
1: So let's talk about the black and white scenario in this episode with okay. Mad Sweeney and Laura and Essie, because those are basically the only characters. I mean, they kind of get rid of Salim in this way that was just like, okay, whatever. He's gone now. He was praying too much. <laughs> we, we've we let him go. What is the message really here? Because we were just talking about the simple, we hate guns message last week. Like, what's, what is is the kind of simple message we're supposed to be getting out of Mad Sweeney and, and Essie's relationship?
2: I think this episode was just a mess. And I don't think they had a clear message. But they I had know a, they had a <laughs> bunch of very simplistic messages, which kind of overlapped and kind of interfered with each other. And, and one of them was, let me just say upfront that the first half of the Essie story reminded me so much of Kathy from East of Eden. Mm -hmm. And this stereotype of the ambitious, amoral woman, seductress woman who uses her beauty and feminine wiles to get ahead in life and isn't really going anywhere. It doesn't really have a grand plan, but is just wandering through destroying men's lives because that's what she does. And that's that's what Essie is in the first half of her story, and it isn't until she is caught the second time and has the conversation with Matt Sweeney in the prison that she actually comes up with a plan for a better life, where she says, "Oh, if I could just be transported back to America and find someone kind to live with and have a you know have a home and a tree, then I'll be happy." But up to that point, she's just this destructive, seductive force. And then after she makes her bargain with Matt Sweeney, she remembers to make her gift to the, the minor gods of, of fairy. She remembers to make the gift and she gets what she asks for in return from them, for Mad Sweeney in particular, and she, she gets what she wants. And for the rest of her life, then she never forgets again to thank them. And, and and then it becomes a very simplistic story about gratitude towards the gods and making your bargains and, and making sure that you follow through on your bargains. So it's like these two really weird competing stories that don't fit together, but one turns into the other. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's really funny. Like, I hated the whole thing with Essie being kind of like, yeah, using her sexuality to get what she wants. That's in the novel, too. And she's kind of nicely parallel with Laura or the way Laura is being represented uh, in the TV show in that way, because Laura has a similar kind of arc where she's basically just this force of sexuality and destruction. And then when she dies, suddenly she has a purpose in life and it involves a man and settling down with him in, in some way. However, she and Shadow might settle down now that she's undead and Shadow is a henchman for a minor god, you, you know, <laughs> and she's she's on her way to try to become a real girl again. And so I think, you know, that kind of broken story that you're describing where it's like the sort of unhappy slut becomes sort of semi okay, girlfriend
2: character. I, I don't know what that arc is. But uh. she becomes the little woman is what she becomes. I mean, she, she literally like her way in to the life she wants is as a a wet nurse she becomes a double mother and that is how she resolves her evil past and earns her way into the the marriage and the happy homestead and the the family that she wanted can i just put in here (laughs) i was actually going into this episode i was trying to remember if the show passed the bechdel test And I don't think it did until this episode. And I think the only reason the show passes the Bechdel-Wallace test is that Essie was talking to her granddaughters about the little people. And that is, like, I believe the only conversation that two females have about something that isn't a man. Because when Laura talks to her best friend, whose name I forget now, they're talking about her um, relationship with both of their husbands. yeah, That's basically their entire conversation. And, I, and I'm and i trying to think of another conversation between two women in the show. I mean, and that, they also
1: talk about repairing Laura's arm, to be fair. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. I mean, they're, the, the substance of their conversation has to be about Shadow and uh, her friend's yeah. husband and stuff. But there's just, I mean, the other thing about that is I mean, and one of the problems with passing the Bechdel test in a show like this is that it's really about men. I mean, they're really- it, it it
2: really it really is. I mean, if you think about the the goddesses that have been represented, there are only two: Bilquis and Media. And Bilquis is, first of all, she's a historical legendary figure, um, so historical legendary slash myth- mythological figure. But she's not a goddess in the in the legends. She's it, it's an alternate name for the Queen of Sheba, and so the way that she's represented in American Gods is entirely based upon the desires of the author. It is not based upon, I mean, yes, there are stories of the Queen of Sheba being bedded by King Solomon, but Bilquis is not a a seductress goddess. So that was entirely Neil Gaiman's choice and entirely the choice of the filmmakers. She's like a generic fertility sex goddess, but
1: I, I agree with you. It's weird to pin that on Bilquis. I mean you could Yeah, it's it's very bizarre another, pick another fertility goddess.
2: But because because also the Queen of Sheba is arguably a representation of feminine empowerment because she, you know, maybe maybe she sleeps with King Solomon, maybe she doesn't, but she also has her own kingdom and yeah, she's um a queen you know she's a queen so to make her uh, all about sexuality and that's all she is about like the first few episodes we just see her fucking and swallowing people with her vagina i mean mm-hmm. that's it and so so that, that's <laughs> she built has I mean, I the entire cosmos inside of her
1: vagina which is yes. kind of badass but yeah no she is she is basically the goddess
2: version of essie in that she is yes. macha- all her power comes from sex Yes, and then there's and then there's media who um, has embodied three figures. One is uh, Lucy Arnaz, Lucille Ball, and one is David Bowie, and one is is Marilyn Monroe. It's very bizarre because the David Bowie character did not feel right to me because the way that she is, she embodied um, Lucille Ball and Marilyn Monroe, made media a very female, feminine and deliberately seductive and, you know, kind of a feminine principle kind of goddess. Mm -hmm. And then to have her be David Bowie is like, well, how does David Bowie actually fit in with your scheme of, of, of how media, you know, interacts with the public? And it doesn't really. I actually liked that because I thought it made
1: media a more complicated character because she actually says that Her worship comes from people giving attention. So she's not just a sex, you know, she's not just using sexuality. She's using um, interest. She's using something that's fascinating or mesmerizing. Uh, And so I think Marilyn Monroe is definitely the sort of sexual figure. Although Lucy from I Love Lucy
2: you know, she's a comedian. And so it wasn't just... But, I mean, but she but she is also quintessentially a, a wife and a homemaker.
1: She is, but I guess what I would say is that unlike Marilyn Monroe, where I don't think anyone would ever argue that she's supposed to... She's been, Marilyn Monroe is like the modern Bilquist, basically, although yeah. mi- minus the, the hungry vagina, as far as we know. Um, <laughs> we don't know what Marilyn Monroe had going on up there. However, I think that Lucille Ball, like, you know to be fair, like she is she's is a wife, but she as a cultural figure, especially in the 50s, you know, she was like she was in an interracial marriage or what would have been looked at as an interracial marriage at that time. She was a comedian uh, in a culture that thinks that women can't be funny. I mean, that's like still something that we're struggling with now. And she really was, uh, you know, a comedian in her own right. So I, I think that she's a little bit less of the kind of generic feminine seductress uh, figure.
2: Well, I, I was I wasn't thinking of her as a generic feminine seductress figure I was thinking of her as the Madonna the Madonna half of the oh, Madonna whore right.
1: yeah so she's like yeah. a motherly acceptable wife character um, yeah. yeah and I think that's why you know it was cool to have um, media take on the David Bowie persona because I think that that I actually think that that they've done a relatively good job representing media in this show not you know, not that it's perfect, but like, I think, you know, that like Odin, uh, or mm-hmm. Wednesday, like that her, her godhood, her, uh, has been, um, you know, is, is a little bit more complex than say some of the other gods. But then there's Mad Sweeney, who I think is possibly the most incoherently represented character. So great. Cause he's not a, god, again, it's sort of a bilquist situation where it's like a sort of mythological character has been turned
2: into a god or a demigod or a god mm-hmm. sidekick. I don't know. Well, well, I think the argument they make in this episode for his godhood is pretty strong argument that offerings are made to him. And then in exchange for wishes or desires, and then he fulfills those wishes and desires Um, in exchange for offerings, or if the offerings are withheld, he punishes. And that is like a very strong argument for godhood, because that is how so many gods are treated. It's in, in all cultures.
1: Yeah, that's true. And he's, I mean, I think the thing that was, to me, very weird about this episode was that he gives us this backstory about how he used to be a king, and then fled a battle, and now he owes Odin. So it's like, there's this mixed... I don't know what I want. (laughs) Mixed mythology.
2: Actually, I I don't have a problem with that. I I did not do the research into it, but it sounded right to me. It sounded like there may have been some kind of aboriginal god behind that, which was buried by an incoming mythology, which was then buried by another incoming mythology, which then resulted, and and then he blames Christianity i turning leprechauns into fairies. Also, General Mills for turning them into like cute. Yeah, uh, which I I love
1: that. Like I think I that love that too. I think it's a great touch. Yeah,
2: it's it's a really important like cultural power. But basically, I I mean I like I said I haven't done the research, but it sounds right to me that leprechauns may once have been some kind of god or or spirit that was then compressed into fairy by Christianity. And um, and I liked that he gave us that brief historical rundown of his existence because so many gods have had existences like that. And so so that to me was not a problem. The problem is not Matsuini's history, and the problem is not the argument for his godhood. The problem is what is he now? because he doesn't behave the way that the other gods in this show behave. He behaves like a human being in the show. Well, he's there become is a
1: kind of a human once he lost his coin. I thought that was supposed to be part of it was that he kind of uh, Yeah, good point. So he's kind of the the angel who's lost his wings, the classic, right. um, you know, walking among men type thing. So but I guess like, the the real question is like in the in the final scene uh, when I was taking notes I kept referring to it as the bunny car crash um, I don't know if that bunny was <laughs> was sent by uh, a goddess or that we may meet or not but he gives the coin back to Laura and I. I couldn't figure out what that
2: was supposed to be about or if we're not supposed to know yet what that's about. Um, Oh, uh, um, this this might be uh, (laughs) some old neurons firing in my brain, remembering the original story from the the novel. But I read that as Odin had sent him to make the crash, the original crash that killed Laura happen so that he could hire Shadow and because we see we see a flashback to the night that Laura di- actually dies. And we know it's the night that she dies because, A, it's nighttime as opposed to daytime when the second crash happens. And B, she's wearing a mini skirt as opposed to the jeans that she's wearing when the second crash happens. She's wearing a mini skirt in the first crash. So basically, yeah, I mean, I, I think he flashes back. Sweeney is supposed to flashback to the night that he caused Laura to die at Odin's behest. I'm guessing Odin's Right. Biased. No, that makes then... total
1: sense because Odin wants Shadow to be free to assist him. So that makes total sense. I was because I at the end of the episode, I was like, wait, what are why is he saying that he had done worse things? And of course, that all makes sense now. So he feels some guilt for having basically killed Laura the first time. Yeah. Um, and so he's kind of as much as he's been cursing at her. He has this historical connection to her because of his relationship with her ancestor. And also he is, yeah, he feels bad for, for killing her because.
2: And that's all an argument for his humanity as well,
1: um, as true, opposed yeah. to his
2: godhood. Yeah, because, God, because the gods are just like, they're powerless enough to have to be deceitful, but they're amoral in the way that, that gods are supposed to be amoral. It, or, or have it have a higher morality or a, a different morality? Yeah, because you wouldn't and...
1: see any of these other gods being like, "Oh, I feel bad about what I did. I think I'll go fix that." We would just not even with Wednesday. We we don't see stuff like that. So I guess like the the one other thing I wanted to ask you about because in your own work you often incorporate elements of the surreal into a story that's otherwise really realistic, and I wondered if you thought that this episode's kind of surreal moments worked, because there were several bits where, you know, we've had some pretty surreal episodes in this series, but it felt like here, the line between, you know, truth and what characters are imagining was getting really wavy. I'm wondering what you think of that? Do you think that that was deliberate? Do you think that it worked? Well, do you think it was sloppy? Like, how did that go for you?
2: Well, I, I would have to take a step back from that and say, I don't consider anything part of this show surreal because surreality to me is about representing impossible things in a world in which consensus reality is supposed to rule and therefore these impossible things have no explanation and that is the surreality whereas in this show, it takes place in a world where gods are real right. and gods exist and they're functioning um, in everyday life. So although there is a, a feeling and a, a, the emotional impact is of surreality, it's not technically surreality, it's all supernatural. So um, so while I think the show is actually relying on our feeling of surreality, our our understanding of the surreal and surreal fiction. And it's it's relying on magical realism and surrealism to kind of inform the way that we interact with the show. On a very strict, fundamental level, nothing is technically surreal, because it all belongs to the realm of the supernatural that they've laid out in the show. So the show's I think pretty effectively having its cake and eating it too. It's being a, it's being a fantasy. It is literally being a fantasy, but it is also playing on our sense of reality to get a feeling of surreality out of it. And so we we have we actually have three levels in the show. The level where we're completely in the fantasy world, which is, for example, I think the entire story of Essie takes place in this kind of fantasy world where you can kind of see the leprechauns out of the corner of your eye. And then there's the second level, which is the level of the surreal where you have humans in this world shadow be foremost among them who are experiencing these weird things and they don't believe in gods and they don't believe in the supernatural they don't believe in magic so they're experiencing it at a surreal level and then you have the reality of the show, which is also depicted in a somewhat surreal fashion, but is very clearly delineated from the magical elements of the show. Like I said, I think it's, it's pretty effectively done. And I think they're really smart in doing it that way.
1: Yeah, I've been enjoying the style of the show, probably most of all, like, I feel like if you can talk about world building as like, almost a character, I love the way that the world is being built. And, and the visual style is fantastic. Like, there's mm. never felt like, you know, totally. visually, I've ever been bored or disappointed in any way. It's just really that these, we get these kind of muddled plots and weird character arcs that you
2: kind of don't
1: always pay off. That's always a bit of a problem.
2: Yeah, that, that that was my main issue with this particular episode was, what was the point of this episode? What happened in this episode that moves the overall action forward? Partly because the episode, we didn't see Shadow at all in the episode, and he is the protagonist, and the protagonist is the character whose action moves the action of the of the piece forward. So if Shadow isn't doing anything, if he isn't being the agent, then the overall action of the piece isn't actually being moved forward. And so basically all we saw was this very long backstory about a character who has no direct bearing on anything that's happening in the story. Uh, That's Essie. And then we also see Laura and Mad Sweeney kind of take a step backward and that's on their their road trip and that's about it.
1: Yeah, it's true. There's, I mean, pretty much all that happens is they lose the coin they get the coin yeah <laughs> and there's a bunny crash and like yeah we learned that like mad sweeney might be nicer than we
2: thought basically mad sweeney gets with the program it's like the entire episode was to get mad sweeney with the program i i.e. Right. with laura's program of right. resurrecting herself whereas before he was only doing it very reluctantly because he had no other choice now he is clearly trying to actively trying to resurrect her okay great but Did we need an entire episode to get him there?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you know, so it goes. So basically, they're going to have to resolve everything next episode. That's the final episode. And we're just going to have to see if they're able to tie up every loose end. And, you know, they have another season. They've already gotten a second season. So, you know, maybe some uh, cliffhanger situations uh, are in order.
2: (laughs) Part of the reason that this, this episode feels so much like filler is that they had eight full episodes. So that's a lot they had eight full episodes and they were only doing the half half of the book because clearly they're stretching the book out over two seasons unless they're not, in which case, next episode going to be a doozy. But I think that's what they're doing. So basically, they should have either shortened the season or, I don't know, done something differently, because that was really an episode of filler. Yeah, I, the theory
1: that I've heard is that um, they will wind up the main plot of the book in the next episode. So there will really? be a showdown between the gods And that the next season, again, this is just a fan theory that I've heard that that the next season will be either it'll be something totally original or it will be going back to the book where there's a long sequence where Wednesday puts Shadow in a small town to wait for him and Shadow winds up getting sucked into like a mystery in the town that involves uh, an ancient entity. And it's kind of unrelated to the overarching story of the novel, but it's, it's a pretty long section. It's actually really, really good. It would be a fantastic novella, and mm-hmm. would in fact make a really interesting season. So that's a fun fan theory that I think would actually be really interesting. But we don't know if that's really going to happen. They might indeed sort of start the war between the gods and then say, and see you next year.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
1: That was Claire Light talking to me about this week's episode of American Gods. Next up, Nathan Matice interviews Bruce Langley, who
0: plays Technical Boy. So stay tuned. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to chat with me. Uh, I want to start with kind of a a simple question. I feel like when I talk to people who are involved with TV that mirrors modern tech to some degree, it kind of changes the way they look at their own tech habits off screen and in real life. And I'm wondering if getting to become the technical boy has changed the way you interact with technology off camera.
3: Yeah, fundamentally, uh, it very, very much has. I mean... So uh, by no means beforehand was I in any way a Luddite, but (laughs) I was probably in the late adopting bracket in terms of innovation. The amount of research that I was doing in terms of emerging technology, things along the lines of like Kevin Kelly's uh, The Inevitable and Emerging Technologies and so many other things along those lines. The Shallows as well by Nicholas Carr was a seminal book. Absolutely. It's brilliant. In a raw practical sense, I mean, through the show, I have become much more involved in social media much more involved in literally plugging in and becoming involved in that kind of technical space and also a lot more aware of the literal biochemical effect that constantly (laughs) engaging in dopamine hits in terms of social media, but literally engaging with technology and how it is literally rewiring. Again, I mean, I mentioned Nicholas Carr's The Shallows, but how it is literally rewiring our neural biochemistry, everything along those lines, the literal structures of our neocortex, how that's changing with our interactions of technology as a species. So yes, my involvement (laughs) and research with technology through Technical Boy, yeah, I mean, it's changed a hell of a lot. And I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to study more.
0: And I have to imagine that that has informed the way you approach the performance, because you've now experienced, like you were saying, these hits of dopamine from waiting for the next notification or that feeling of I don't, missing out if you're not checking your Twitter feed every so often. How has that kind of seeped in, or how have you internalized it and then put that into the performance?
3: Yeah, you hit you hit the nail on the head in many ways. He is a reflection of of that. He's a reflection of this kind of this constant need for social gratification, incredibly impulsive. Very, very reactionary, very, very impatient in many ways, but he's also a reflection of so much more with technology. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the show is that these gods, any of them, the old gods, the new gods, they are and forever shall be simply reflections of humanity and what we believe as a species. And being tech boy, he is a reflection of all technology. So, yes. He is a reflection of these dopamine hits and all the rest of those things and all these vicious aspects. and that you know that's that's evidenced in his um, in how he interacts or chooses not to interact with anyone else throughout the world. but he also represents the progress that technology is bringing. And just bearing in mind how fundamentally technology has changed our entire world and how it's changing our entire species and how much it's going to change our entire species over the next 30 years. So, yes, he, he does represent this kind of this petulance, this arrogance and all of those things. However, one thing that isn't being addressed yet, and we may well get to, fingers crossed, exploring Ford, is, is he also represents all of the positive things and how much it is shaping the direction of our species. So it's two sides of the same coin. He's a double-edged sword, as are all the gods.
0: Right, And, and like you said, as is technology in general. And especially because, you know, the book is 15 or 16 years old now, and technology, even in that short period of time, has just changed fundamentally. And like you said, in another 10 to 20 to 30 years, Yeah, Tech Boy would look very different if American Gods is rebooted down the line.
3: Absolutely. I mean, well, think so. I mean, if we're following the current curve of Moore's law by 2023, we're going to be at a position where a thousand dollars will be able to get you a standardized processing power of (laughs) like 10 to to—it's a a machine that can run calculations at 10 to the power of 16 um, (laughs) calculations a second, which is literally the speed of the human brain. So we're in a situation where by 2023, if the Moore's Law continues the way it's going, that we will be able to buy the calculational and computational power of a human brain for $1,000. <laughs> that's mental. Yeah, That's, that's, that's <laughs> a it. You can buy a human brain. That's insane. And then by 2000, I think it's 50 or around then, it's, um, it gets to the point where you can buy, for again, $1,000, you can buy all of the computational power of the entire human species. <laughs> like. That, that, I don't think people, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm very much on the bandwagon that I don't think people understand how quickly things are about to fundamentally change because of technology.
0: Uh, I mean, you can't even wrap your mind around what that processing power looks like. It's, It's hard to imagine. Although on the show, I feel like you do a nice job of tech boys kind of just, how, how much is going on at his brain and at what a rapid pace it is? I feel there is a frenetic energy to him, particularly in those scenes where you're pulling people into the what I, I refer to as a virtual reality limo.
3: Yes. Part of my um, character development and one of the things that I... Probably one of my favorite things about the entire character, actually, is that he is a um, composite consciousness <laughs> that... So part of his brain, part of his mind, rather, a brain is, a, he wouldn't like that, such a meatbag term. <laughs> it's part of it is artificial. So part of it literally thinks faster and processes information faster than any other possible biological brain could. He has access to all of the information, all of the library of human knowledge instant. So there's that. There's that part of him. He is a deity completely born of belief. So he has that side of his consciousness as well. And also part of him is human intrinsically because he is born of that belief So getting to play with that kind of glorious maelstrom of dichotomies, these pulling away of being incredibly... Well, first of all, he's straight up, he thinks faster than anyone else in the room, full stop, (laughs) always. So when he's sitting and waiting for you to understand something, when he's having a conversation with you, in those milliseconds, he has comprehended different paradigms of thoughts and different universes. When you are taking a breath, he has run so many different possibilities and different brain cycles. The, the, he's thought about infinity in the time it takes you to take a breath. So if he seems impatient, yeah, he's having to, wait, <laughs> having to wait for these, by by his own standards, these absolute degenerate, just different species like amoeba level consciousnesses attempting to play in his world. So there's that, He's he, he thinks so quickly, everything is at his fingertips. And he has to try and interact with these inconsiderate sacks of me that are trying (laughs) to play his his game. And, yeah, I mean, it's such a gift to get to play with a character like that. And it's so much fun.
0: I think you do a great job of showcasing this characteristic you just mentioned because it doesn't matter who Tech Boy is interacting with. If it's Shadow, if it's an old god, if it's a new god, you can see that little bit of annoyance because, like you said, he knows so much so quickly He's just bound to be uh frustrated with whatever delays are going on or with whatever he sees as suboptimal,
3: yeah absolutely I mean, and then there's the the characters like Wednesday who have the audacity to believe something that objectively as far as technical boy is concerned, objectively is just like r o i false <laughs> just just he's just wrong, like he's literally like you're you're playing with these these old traditional beliefs, you're playing with this old way of thinking. I can literally show you the metrics and paint the universes. I can create and formalise the virtual universes that show you that you're wrong. You're so wrong. Why are you still here? And <laughs> all of that happens in like an, less than a nanosecond, as well as a myriad of other thoughts. He's, I've he's, oh got I bloody love him. He's a great character. Well, uh, one of the things I have really enjoyed about the technical
0: boy when you get to the end of the season is you see, yes, he's you know, loosely part of the New Gods team, but you see his frustration when he's interacting with that. But he is capable of, I don't want to say necessarily manipulating, but he's able to recruit or, you know, run an old god just like media is able to do so with Easter. We find out that Bilquis is someone who Tech Boy... It makes sense in the real world. You see the connection between technology and love these days, but Tech Boy is capable of forging that relationship and, and recruiting Bilquis to be on the new god side to some extent. What do you think about that? And did that surprise you when you got to that point in the script?
3: No, it didn't surprise me. It's something that um I actually I thought it was incredibly intelligent, but it felt very, very natural. I mean, so the real dirty little secret is any of the new gods, and indeed most of the old gods, by virtue of our current society – They're using technology. Mm -hmm. One is it's so integrated into our everyday lives. So one way or the other, tech boy has the finger in the pie of whatever it is you care about, so to speak. He's involved. He is completely involved. And yes, he is entirely capable of manipulating anyone he really, really wants to. I mean, if you remove people's technology, suddenly they're not connected. Suddenly they are not integrated into the world. It it might as well be subdermal. I mean, inside the next 10 years, it probably will be, but it's, (laughs) it's, it's in us. It really is. I mean, we carry around artificial intelligences in our pockets. We're outsourcing our own memories, We're outsourcing our own, literally our own thoughts. We are we're, we're clouding our consciousness. And yeah, he's very, very capable of manipulating. For a start, it's easy to manipulate the old gods because they in particular, Quist and her situation. He comes to her at a point where she is down on her luck and he offers her he offers her a lifeline. Not only a lifeline, he offers her a way to get back to where she was. Now it's not it's not the same flavour, like it's nothing like she had back in the old days of ancient Egypt, but it is a way to survive and it's modern and it's adaptable. And one thing I would say, no no more than just a very, very soft tease at this point, is <laughs> the the old gods and the new gods, they all have their own agendas. So Yes at the current positioning in time the new gods are working towards a, a same same point i mean unity Mr World all of that the whole banner but don't be surprised if we get to see a little bit more from the new gods and getting to see their own individual angles and getting to see maybe a little bit more of why they are doing what they're doing personally in a in a god sense so just yeah watch this space for the new gods it <laughs> might not be as close if it's, like, it's synergistic. I mean, media needs technology, technology needs media, Worcester World's unity. However, they all have their own MOs.
0: That would be fascinating to watch. And I guess it is one of the things that is nice about American Gods is that type of character exploration is possible. The show's already showed it a couple times this season with entire episodes devoted to Laura or to our leprechaun friend. And it's nice yes. that you're willing to go down to that deep background on some of the characters that we are coming to love and are fascinating
3: yeah no it is i mean it's an absolute gift and i mean i absolutely adored getting to um i mean even laura's episode like getting to really really in, in get gone episode four getting to really explore her backstory which we didn't get to do in the book yeah. which was amazing and then a little bit of a uh, a nod where well, we got essie mcgowan episode seven and then looking into sweeney i mean there's a whole spin-off series right there you're <laughs> like you, that's that's cut that's ready that can go like I'm so excited to see more of that. I really hope we get to. I've no idea whether we will, but that would be lovely. Like, the, the gods, I mean, new gods not so much because they are by, you know, by definition new. But the, the old gods with their backstory, so much history. I think there is such an opportunity to explore the narrative and where they came from and who they are. I think it's just a beautiful opportunity to get to explore what it means to be human. With
0: the season behind you, looking back on it, you know, do you have a favorite tech boy moment? And, and going forward, do you have any particular hopes for him in season two?
3: Well, I'll tell you what. I'll show you something that I haven't really shared with um a lot of people. I think I've mentioned it a couple of times, but it's not been out there. Me, Ian, and Ricky had a scene. It was cut for continuity, Um, but there was a scene that was originally going to be in the original cut in episode four, but a lot of things got moved around, which was essentially Mr. Wednesday and Tech Boy sitting across from each other in an ice cream parlor, <laughs> just tearing verbal chunks out of each other. <laughs> I've seen just ripping each other's hearts out and showing them to each other and just being just as horribly conceited and just total bastards to each other. But it, <laughs> oh my god was that fun. That was an incredibly fun moment that just as an actor is an absolute gift to get to play with to get to play with Ian. I mean what yeah. what an absolute privilege. I'm hoping that going forward we're going to get to see maybe something along those lines again. That would be fantastic. In terms of um what's already aired that I really really enjoy I mean, so much. I mean, just just on a side note, I love Sweeney and Laura's relationship, Pablo and Emily. I think <laughs> that's one of my favorite parts of the show. I think it's bloody brilliant. But the limo scene was actually my audition scene. Oh, cool. Yeah.
0: That very first one where you pull Shadow in.
3: That's the one, yes. So that's got a very, very soft spot in my heart. And going forward, one thing I'd really like to do, again, uh, this has been tweeted about so I can talk about it roughly, but um, we originally, in one of the cuts in episode three, were going to explore Tech Boy's origin story, how he came to be and how he got to where he is. Now, in the, in, in the final cut, we like it was decided that that wasn't, that wasn't the way we wanted to go. But I am sincerely hoping we get to explore where Tech Boy comes from and came from in season two and three, whatever, going forward. But, but in a main point, one thing I really, really want to explore with the character and would be thrilled to explore in general is the point of view of the new gods. Right now, we are very much painted as the antagonists because it is from the point of view of, um, of Shadow and Wednesday, of Ricky and Ian. And of course, it's the introduction to the world. However, I think it's very, very important to bear in mind the individualized points of view. No one is intrinsically bad in this war. And everyone's got their reasons for doing what they're doing. And I would be incredibly interested to show a little more of, in particular, tech boy's reasoning for doing what he's doing. Showing the new god side of things. Because right now, we're we're the bastards, but... (laughs) We are, that the new gods are facing up to some real harsh truths. And at the end of the day, there's a reason that they have the power that they do. They are necessary and they're doing something. And for the future of humanity, you know, what, I just, I really want to explore the new gods point of view and where that could go.
0: Well, it's it's good that you're on a show that has shown a willingness to experiment, to change point of views and perspectives, because I could totally see that as an episode at some point going forward. And I would very much enjoy that too.
3: Absolutely. That'd no, be great. Love that.
0: Bruce, I really appreciate your time. I hope, uh, you know, twist Brian Fuller and everybody's arms at some point. Get that Ian McShane scene on the internet, at least as an extra for people to enjoy, because that sounded awesome. But thank you for your time and, you know, congrats on a great season and enjoy kind of the ride as the episodes air and as fans get to interact with you through the end of the season.
3: Thank you very much for taking the time out your day, Nathan. It's been an absolute pleasure
0: you've been listening to
1: Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the television that we want to talk about until our lips fall off. For the past seven weeks, we've been watching American Gods and next week is going to be the finale. So tune in, stay tuned, come back next week and we'll talk about the final battle.